0: Hey there, guys. Thanks for joining me in the Holy Shed, the
1: tiniest parish in Christendom. Oh, yes. But you know what? 25 years ago, this very weekend, I was in one of the biggest churches in Christendom, St Paul's Cathedral, being ordained under the Great Dome. And um, it's funny, isn't it? Well, I seem to think it's funny there. I mean, this isn't 25 years ago. Obviously, this was, I think, just before I... Retired from St Luke's Church, and I love the fact that our gorgeous friend Jean is uh, hiding away behind us there, waiting to make an appearance. But um, it is funny, you know. If you told me back in the days when I was a house church apostle, oh yes, all downhill since then. Uh, if you told me back then that I would land upon the steps of St Paul's, blushing, wearing a frock. I'd have thought you were completely bonkers. When the Bishop of London decided to ordain me, he said, Dave, you're going to find the Church of England very frustrating, and you'll be critical of lots of things, but I believe the Church will benefit from your criticism. He'd actually just read a copy, hot off the press, of The Post-Evangelical, my first book, and said he wanted all his evangelical clergy to read it. I don't think they did, but nice idea. But, you know, it was a generous thing of him to say, and he was right. I have, I do, find lots of things frustrating about the Church of England. That's not difficult. But I also have found in it a home. I've also found greater freedom to be myself, with all my idiosyncrasies than I could ever have imagined. And it's provided me, you know, with the most fruitful years of my life so far and um if you want to see a couple more pictures by the way here you go um i could show you lots but you know you can see i'm having fun it's it's been a blast so far and it continues to be uh the picture in the top right by the way looks pretty pagan and you know that's not too far off the mark it was see there me and a lovely woman called apricot from uh, Portland, Oregon, who was helping me to marry our dear friends, Amy and Rob, and uh, they chose to do that in a pretty paganish way, but beautiful, up on one of the highest hills along the coast of Dorset. Absolutely fabulous day. So, you know, initially, I, I never saw myself as a parish priest. Um, as well as working for the bishop as his chaplain for the environment back then. Um, I also worked for a little while as chaplain to a hospital in East London that specialised in treating people with HIV AIDS. And this is in the 1990s, you know, when uh, a diagnosis of HIV was pretty much a death sentence. Um, Obviously, most of the patients there were gay um, and it was among those gay patients, especially those ones who had a religious background, that I ended up spending so much of my time. You know, these were people who had parted company with the church because because they felt condemned and rejected for something which, so far as they were concerned, they never chose in the first place. Um, you know, attraction to people of the same sex, came as natural to them as my attraction to women. It wasn't it isn't a matter of choice. So they left the church, not necessarily wishing to, but they left with words of condemnation and hellfire ringing in their ears. and then by the time you know I got to see them uh, at the end of the and the end of their life was in view, some feared that perhaps <clears throat> it was all true, you know fears came back to haunt them uh, and were afraid that, you know, they really were an abomination to God. And that was where so much of my work lay. In many cases, I did thankfully convince them that this was not true, that God loved them for precisely who they were. I helped them to find as best I could the voice of God's approval and love within themselves. And I also had the sad honour of taking many of their funerals, helping them on their way now in a state of peace. Uh, With one man, Brian, however, I sadly failed to get through. He went home for a weekend after we'd had a chat for an hour or so and we'd agreed to meet on Monday when he returned, but he never did come back. Over the weekend, he took his life tormented by this thought that, you know, the man upstairs hates me, as he put it. A more beautiful man, you know, I couldn't possibly hope to meet. He was elegant, intelligent, compassionate, lived faithfully with his partner for 19 years. At his funeral, his mother, you know, cried out in the middle of the service, why did you do this to my beautiful boy? He was full of love, why did you torment him? She blamed the church, of course, but she blamed herself, too, for bringing him up as a good church-going Christian young man. So look, we're at the end of Pride Month. If I'd been in London yesterday, I would have gladly marched and celebrated with my dog collar on. So I would personally like to light a candle for 50 years of Pride, which has helped so many people, helped to affirm the LGBT plus community um, i'm also lighting it for people who've suffered at the hands of angry heartless religion my god the god of jesus christ is not an angry god but rather a god of grace of unconditional love and acceptance so that's why i'm lighting it for join me in that if you wish or or light it for uh, you know whoever you would light it you would like to light it for but let's take a few moments of gratitude for all the good things that pride has produced and of loving uh, concern for those who have suffered and do suffer at the hands of religion for all kinds of reasons. God grant us serenity in accepting who we are on the inside. Courage to stand and be counted when others suffer. And defiant hope never to give up imagining a world where all are at home. Amen. Now, if you were to believe some of my critics, you'd think that I sit here in the holy shed, cooking everything up, you know, from scratch, making all this stuff up with no regard for, you know, the past, with no regard for scripture or tradition. Well, I hope, dear friends, that you know that is anything but true. And it really isn't just me who sees things the way I do. There are countless scholars, theologians, and fellow church leaders who have very similar convictions to me on things like scripture and same-sex relationships. Not that I would ever be happy to leave it there, you know. I have to find things out for myself, and I don't mind being on my own in that, you know. I wrestle constantly with the Bible and theology and insights from the modern world until I am personally convinced, until I can express what I believe with conviction and authenticity, but also with humility to admit that, you know, I sometimes get it wrong and, you know, I have a reverse gear, I can rethink things. Long before I became an Anglican, I was influenced by a 16th century architect of Anglicanism, a man called Richard Hooker, who determined uh, famously that truth and revelation exist in a synthesis of three things, scripture, tradition, and reason. Scripture, tradition, and reason. And that each of these depends on the other two and doesn't stand alone. That's an important insight. Um, And it is something which is at the core, actually, of what Anglicanism, what the Church of England, really stands for. It's often called Hooker's Three-Legged Stool. And in 1988, the Lambeth Conference, you know, where Anglican bishops from around the world gather every 10 years. In 1988, uh, the conference determined that a fourth leg should be added, which is experience. Uh, Personally, I quite like the three-legged stool because that's more stable than four legs, actually. Um, And for me, experience was always part of uh, reason. But nevertheless, uh, I find this a very, very helpful insight. In that sort of synthesis, the biblical text obviously remains constant, uh, but reason and experience are continually changing and evolving through time and culture, and tradition also evolves out of an interaction between the text and contemporary expressions of reason. An experience. So the Bible, you know, as a text remains the same, but the way that we look at it, the way we interpret it, will change over time because of this, these these lenses, you know, of of, of, of um, reason and experience. And that's fed by the, the kind of culture round about us. Reason is always part of of reading the Bible. Whether people like to admit it or not, reason is always a factor in reading the Bible. Of course it is, because otherwise we wouldn't know what we would read. There'd be no understanding. Of course we bring reason, and reason immediately is a hermeneutical factor. It's a tool. It's a way of interpreting the text, of giving it a, a different sort of slant or light at this time or at that time. Every interpretation is based on some form of reason, good or bad, and the church has always found fresh reasoning. Reasoning has always been a part of the the historical ev- ev- evolution of the life of the church. The Reformation, for instance, was a result of reason. You know, it was someone, Luther, and then many others saying, "Hang on a minute," um, of rethinking uh, the tradition, and um, you know. Whether the Reformation did that, you know, on the basis of good or bad reasoning, probably partly depends on whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic. But tradition, properly understood, is never a fixed entity, it's something that is changing and evolving all the time, slowly, perhaps mostly. uh, And that's why, you know, you may not notice it. Now, I don't much like the term orthodoxy because. In practice, it suggests something rigid and fixed uh, for all time, and of course, it becomes a sort of club to to beat the heads of people who don't necessarily agree and so Orthodoxy is the basis of excluding anyone who disagrees and you know that's when they're determined often as, as heretics but Richard Hooker's synthesis blows that whole thing apart orthodoxy in the context of of what Hooker's saying can't be seen as simply a body of doctrinal or moral teaching fixed for all time passed down from one generation to the next. It has to be part of a conversation with reason and experience being very present in that conversation. Some years back Influenced by an essay by Rome Williams, I came up with the notion of what I called progressive orthodoxy. It's in this book here, folks, Reenchanting Christianity. Chapter 3 is all about uh, what I called progressive orthodoxy. Uh, Rowan Williams identified two distinct approaches to orthodoxy. The first he saw as a closed system, pre-packed truth, predetermined watertight, fixed for all time, no room to argue or disagree, no critical questions permitted. It's basically a monologue, a voice from the past, and all that it's permitted for us to do now is to repeat and reiterate that ad nauseum. Reason and experience have nothing to offer into that. Rowan Williams' second approach to orthodoxy is pretty much what I call progressive orthodoxy. Here, <clears throat> orthodoxy is seen not as pre packed truth handed down from the past, but as a tradition or a process of shared speech. So it provides the, the you know the the language in which a conversation can be had. It is a process of shared speech, shared symbols. It's a living community of revelation and dialogue. That's a very different kind of approach to what orthodoxy is, isn't it? Rather than being this fixed thing for all time that you beat everybody over the head with who doesn't agree, orthodoxy as a living community of revelation and dialogue, a process that actually invites and welcomes critical questioning, um, a process which is always open to new insights. So instead of saying, this is what we believe, take it or leave it, or this is how we've always done or understood it in this place here. Instead of that, we remain open to the Holy Spirit bringing new insights, fresh understandings of truth, which actually is exactly what Jesus promised at the end of John's Gospel. You know, the Holy Spirit will go on leading you into all truth. So previous understandings of Scripture remain important, but they're now part of a bigger picture, part of an ongoing conversation, drawing on present-day insights and reason, present-day experiences. So the next text, you know, the, the text rather remains alive and relevant because it's being fed by this process of, you know, reason, and, tr- and, and experience being constantly added in. So instead of being turgid and locked in a tomb of rigidity, the text is liberated to become uh, a constantly um, relevant word to each generation. So to put this in the context of LGBT plus issues, here's the question. Where does reason, where does the experience of LGBT plus people fit into a discussion about homosexuality and the christian faith well last week in the shed i looked at you know all the biblical passages generally believed to refer to same-sex relations and i argued that each of those texts actually has a background that means it isn't necessarily very helpful in making judgments about lgbt plus issues today i also argued that um, So far as I can tell and understand, the Bible never addresses a category of person called gay or homosexual, since these terms and the concept behind them uh, are based on a quite modern understanding of a naturally oriented gay person, not a heterosexual who is choosing for whatever reason to behave in an unnatural way homosexual fashion. And I think it's that latter category which is overwhelmingly what is being addressed through uh, the different passages in the Bible that we looked at. But here's the thing, set all that aside, you know, set it all aside. Whatever we think the Bible says, Hooker's approach requires us also to look through the lens of reason and experience to interpret scripture. You see, Look, an honest scan of the Bible tells us that women should be subservient to men. You know, if, you, if you're just going to approach it honestly and openly, overall, the picture you get from the Bible is one of women being subservient to men. And why wouldn't it? You know, because the whole cultural slash religious background to the Bible is patriarchal. You know, as... Uh, Walter Brueggemann, the biblical scholar, says, he says, much of the entire Bible is filtered through a rather heavy-duty patriarchal ideology. (laughs) You know, much of the entire Bible is filtered through a rather heavy-duty patriarchal ideology. The main task of the reader, he says, Brueggemann says, is to distinguish between the gospel, which is the liberating love of God at work in Scripture, and attitudes and policies that you'll find there that really run counter to the gospel, counter to that liberating love of God at work. So that's a, that's an important kind of hermeneutical task that he's put before us there. He says the main task of the reader is to distinguish between the gospel, the liberating love of God at work in scripture, and attitudes and policies that really run counter to that, that we can set on one side. In the case of the role of women in the church, You know, it's taken us a long time to get there, but now most Christians, apart from obviously, you know, fundamentalists, many of them, most people don't worry about the Bible saying that wives should submit to their husbands or that women should keep silent in church and cover their heads. Why? Why do people not worry about these things? Because reason and experience tell us that it's ridiculous and archaic for women to be anything but totally equal with men. And if I'm going to read the Bible and, you know, take these things literally, then I'm going to have to chop my head off because my head is looking around in the world about and seeing, you know, women and men together and saying, that is ridiculous. Also, reason and experience tell us that despite a cultural background which means that slavery is pretty much taken for granted across most of the bible that we should now oppose slavery in every form and how about divorce by the way you know the bible takes a mostly conservative view of the matter and yet even conservative churches seem to find ways to sidestep those uncomfortable biblical texts and why not you know reason and experience tell us that not all marriages work for all kinds of reasons, that divorce is sometimes the best way forward for some people, you know. So, you know, these factors, the reason and experience, you know, are are, are features that play out in many people's Uh, thinking without even realizing that that's what's going on. So how about our LGBT plus sisters and brothers? How does reason and experience help us to interpret whatever we think the Bible says about same-sex relations? Now I hold strongly to the fact that the Bible does not even address the understanding of sexuality available to us today. But whatever we think the Bible says Here's my reasoning and experience, you know. I know more LGBT plus people than I could possibly number, who may never go near a church, by the way, who show me what being a kind, compassionate, decent human being is all about. I know loads and loads and loads of LGBT plus people who follow Jesus, serve and love him at least as much as I do, and strive to live out God's love in the world. I know same-sex marriages, which give me, as a married heterosexual, plenty to aim for, and which reflect the divine image in the very carrying out of that relationship. And, you know, the reverse is also true. There are many heterosexual marriages and relationships that I've known over the years and still see which are abusive and controlling and reflect anything but the image of God. You know. And you know what, Shedsters, this for me, the fact that I see uh, LGBT plus friends and sisters and brothers who reflect the love of God in their lives and in their relationships, this, for me, counts every bit as much as any biblical argument By this, Jesus says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not, they will know you're my disciples by your biblical exegesis. No, but by your love, by your love. Biblicists often don't seem to see this plain as day in the Bible that they are trying to defend. I love that bit in the Acts of the Apostles, where Peter quoted the Bible of God, and God in effect replied, never mind the Bible, this is what I'm telling you to do. (laughs) It all happened, uh, if you're familiar with the story, in a dream or a vision. And it was how God persuaded Peter that the Gentiles were included in God's plan too. Uh, I mean, it's a great story. Maybe I'll come back to that in the Holy Shed soon. But anyway, and you'll find in your finding the text, Peter finally says, Aha! Aha! Now I understand that it's not about religion, that God has no partiality and includes everyone who fears God and does what is right. I mean, that's my paraphrase, but it's, it's pretty much true to the statement. You know, it's a great example of experience and reason giving a new spin to Scripture. Since it's uh, been Pride Month, let me finish with an icon uh, and a story about an icon, an LGBT legend. If you've never seen the film Milk, came out, you know, it's quite a few years back now, but it's still around. Let me recommend you look at it. Sean Penn plays a man called Harvey Milk, and that's what the story is about. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay person to be elected to high public office in the United States. Milk was not a professional politician. He ran for city supervisor in San Francisco in 1977 because he felt ordinary people were being pushed to the margins by big financial interests. It takes no money to respect the individual, he said. It takes no money to respect the individual. The people are more important than roads. And although gay rights were, you know, a big part of what fired him up to enter politics, Harvey Milk fought passionately for the rights of everyone and anyone, uh, you know, without a voice, including blue collar workers, the elderly, racial minorities and, of course, LGBT plus people. The Roman Catholic Cardinal Juan Fresno of Chile once said, Whoever stands up for human rights, stands up for the rights of God. Whoever stands up for the human rights, stands up for the rights of God. Words that I think clearly echo what Jesus said in Matthew 25, when he says, whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. And in that parable in Matthew's gospel about the final judgment, the only criteria at the end of the judgment The only criteria is how did we treat the poor, the marginalised, the suffering ones, and so on. That's the criteria, not what church did you go to, what kind of attitude do you have toward the Bible, you know, um, did you accept Jesus, as you say, none of these things. The question in that parable is how did you treat people, the poor, the marginalised, the suffering ones. Um, this icon I'll show you of Harvey Milk is painted by the Franciscan Robert Lentz, who we've looked at many times in the Holy Shed his work on the day of his election. Harvey Milk recorded his last testament in which he acknowledged that he most probably would die violently. The last words of his expe- ex- acceptance speech were, "You've got to give people hope, You've got to give people hope." On November the 27th, 1978, another politician, his predecessor actually, who was infuriated by Milk's defence of gay and lesbian people, shot him five times at close range. That night, 40,000 people, men and women, old and young, gay and straight, kept a candlelight vigil outside San Francisco City Hall. As you'll see in Robert Lentz's Icon, Harvey Milk holds a candle, keeping vigil himself for the oppressed and marginalised of the world. And he wears a black armband with a pink triangle, which was the Nazi symbol for homosexuals. And Harvey Milk in the Icon wears it to represent all those who've been tortured or killed because of their sexuality. wonderful icon. Despite his short career in politics, Harvey Milk became an icon himself in San Francisco and a martyr in the LGBT plus community. In 2002, he was called the most famous and most significant open LGBT official ever elected in the United States. And Cronenberg, his final campaign manager, wrote What set Harvey apart from you or me was that he was a visionary. He imagined a righteous world inside his head and then set about to create it for real, for all of us. Well, Milk was posthumously posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009, the highest civilian award in the US bestowed by an act of Congress. So look guys, We can argue biblical text till the cows come home and you know what? I'm probably up for it. But what will finally matter, Jesus says, is how we treated people. The way you treated one of the least of these is how you treated me. So in the end, you know, it's not biblicism that matters. And let me stress again and again, I'm a massive lover of the Bible. I read it every day. I wrestle with it all the time. In the end, it is not the Bible that matters. It's who we are as people uh, and how we respond to the call of Christ to be his followers in the world by bringing love and justice and grace and peace and inclusion. It's how we treat people. It's ethics in the end, not belief. So here's a prayer. Loving God, we are grateful for the life and the example of your servant, Harvey Milk, someone who took no regard for his own well-being in the pursuit of justice for all, especially the marginalised and oppressed, and those without a voice. May we also contend fearlessly for a kinder, liberated and more equal world, where people of all rainbow shades can be safe and flourish in their distinctiveness. Help us to love and value our own uniqueness without fear of how others may see or misunderstand us. And may we like Harvey Milk and many others be unflinching bearers of a hope that will never be exhausted, never keep silent. Amen. okay well I'll certainly drink to that so if you've got a drink handy guys get it to hand right now pour yourself a drink or whatever it is this is the sacrament of the holy shed a toast to life so here's a toast a toast to those struggling to own their true identity in situations that are hostile or unwelcoming. A toast to brave people determined to make it easier for us all to stand up on the inside, to present ourselves to the world with confidence and godly pride. A toast to life, Lachaim. okay well that's just about it for another week guys if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us you can buy us a coffee all you need to do is go follow the link on your screen here right now Um, it's also always at the top of the posts on the holy shed facebook page and um, yeah we survive because of support on so many levels uh, and we appreciate that so much. So thank you. Um, I think I've only got one little announcement, really, one parish notice, which is that on Wednesday, 12.30, I'm leading a soul space uh, hosted by St. Athelburgers online. It's a Zoomed soul space. If you go to the St. Athelburgers uh, webpage and look for what's on, you'll find how to, to link up to it. I'll probably post the link anyway later in the week and um love you love to have you join us for an hour of blissful images music stories prayers and uh, some stuff that'll set you up for the rest of the day so i finish with a blessing the blessing of god the eternal goodwill of god the shalom and salam of god the wildness and warmth of god be among us and between us now and always Amen So there you are I'm done I'm going to play out today with uh, a music video of the San Francisco uh, male gay choir singing about our true colours and uh, it's a it's a video that was made as an online video in the middle of lockdown praising you know the heroic acts of people in the uh, caring professions but um, it's it's a message that comes through to us all we need to find our true colors and allow them to shine so enjoy this Uh, have a good week stay human keep on loving and caring for people around about you and yourselves that's what it's all about see you soon
0: do or be the backlash of somebody's lack of love, but I wonder what could happen.